So hi, everybody, and welcome to the Photo Book Book Group. Thank you for coming. I'm excited to have you here. Um, couple of just basics. Um, I work in an active studio, so you might hear background noise. We're going, going to spend some time um, Andrew and I will discuss the book. We'll see um, several images and we will have a lot of time for questions and answers. Um, and I learned something from India Beale, who was a guest um, when we reviewed performance review, when we had that on the photo book book group. And she said, um, I don't normally do this, but I've learned to. And she stopped and asked everyone who's on the call to support the various entities that make these things possible. So in this case, it's actually supporting my social media platforms, Andrews. I've included um, Mary Virginia Swanson as someone who was a, a component to this book and making it happen. Um, we all are part of a photo community and the more that we amplify each other, the stronger our community gets. So she literally stopped the beginning of our meeting and said, all right, everybody get on Instagram, get on Facebook. I'm Jay Sibilla. Um, and um, I know Swanee has an unbelievable website with a lot of resources. Um, mine has different ones, but is also uh, something to explore and to sign up for our newsletters because what we do, especially Swanee and I, is amplify contemporary photography. Um, Deb Hemley is our media coordinator and our co-host and she is the one who's going, going to monitor our chat and um, she's also the one that does all those lovely reminders <laughs> to tell you that we're ready for the meeting. So I'm about to start and um, I wanted to um, introduce Andrew, and, and say something that I learned from the book, which that you are a fifth generation Georgian, you are Jewish, and that you are a second generation Georgian artist. And I love how you wrote that your artwork, your photography centers on the complexity complexities of the South and that you're exploring the South of its culture, its history, its geography. Um, with this book, you have done a service to amplify a hidden narrative and we are learning more uh, how to re-narrate our history. So I just have to say thank you and I'm very excited to unpack. And I was trying to describe to you how it just increased this feeling of the need to amplify it as I went through the book. It just grew and grew and grew. Um, I'm starting with this quote uh, by Sarah Mills because Sarah Mills Hodge Daycare Center is literally something that grew out of one of the Rosenwald schools. And as I went through and learned different aspects of what was happening where and then what was the trajectory from a Rosenwald school building, um, I came across this quote on Sarah Mills Hodge's daycare center. Um, and I thought it was so appropriate to what you're doing and what also what uh, Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington did that we are so feeling the effects of today. Literally our Congress and our, our government is impacted by what they did in the early 1900s. Because if they didn't, we wouldn't have had John Lewis. Think about that, how sad would that be? So anyway, this quote, this. This learned I from the shadow of a tree, which to and fro did cast its shadow on a wall. Our shadow selves, our influence may fall where we can never be. 
And I just thought that was so appropriate to what you've done. So welcome, Andrew. And I'm excited to introduce what you've done. And I'm going to try to figure out my, there we go. Yay, I'm on the right page to do another um, frame. This image uh, really resonated for me in terms of just how powerful an image it was. And I, I want to give you time to talk about the historical significance of how you came across this find and then how you followed this trail. And so we've kind of got three veins to go in. One is this historical significance, which is huge. The other is your creative practice, um, which I think of this image and I go into the aesthetics and of how you framed it with the shadow and a lot of what really the making of the photograph was about. And the third and last is your bookmaking. So we are an unscripted conversation and we're just gonna weave all of these together. So um, you can hop in and tell us how this began for you and welcome and thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And thank you all for attending. I see a number of friends. I see a number of mentors. And um, as I, I was saying to uh, earlier that this is a, a project like this is, is at some level a, a solitary experience. I drove 25,000 miles almost entirely by myself. I sat at this desk for hours trying to find Rosenwald schools uh, that were still surviving, um, that uh, I tried to find the people that were associated with these schools. And then you kind of, and there was a very, very closely held group of people who were involved in this process, including my wife, who has been a working artist for 25 years. And I would come back from these stories and it was really in conversations with her that I helped, that helped find the emotional narrative here at the heart of the story. And as you will all see, this book is dedicated to her. Um, but then you bring a, a bring this forth into the world and you get these reactions to it. And even it, just in its pre-publication stage now, the, the reactions that I've gotten are, are just beyond what I ever could have imagined. So it's really, it's, it's fun and, and exciting. And I, I'm particularly looking forward to this conversation because of the depth that we'll go into around much more of a photography narrative. So I'll go on a couple of threads and then I'll sort of come back to what y'all want to are interested in talking about. But the Rosenwald Schools program is one of the most transformative moments in the first half of the 20th century in America. It literally reshapes the nation. It re completely remakes the African-American experience. Uh, and yet it remains hidden history. And for even people who know about the program, its scope and sweep is largely unknown. And I'll just, by very, very brief introduction, so, uh, give, I'll give you the very basic bones of the story. Um, Julius Rosenwald is the son of Jewish immigrants who fled religious persecution in Germany. He grows up in Springfield, Illinois, literally in a home across the street from Abraham Lincoln's house. That four square block area of downtown Springfield is a national historic site. And the home of Julius Rosenwald 
is the offices of the superintendent of this National Historic Site. Uh, he rises to become the president of Sears Roebuck and Company. He leads Sears from 1908 until his death in 1932. He turns Sears into the world's largest retailer of its era. And he becomes one of the earliest and greatest philanthropists in American history. And his cause is what later becomes known as civil rights. Booker T. Washington, born into slavery in Virginia, becomes an educator, is the founder of the historically black college in Alabama, then known as Tuskegee Institute. And the two men meet in 1911. By the way, May 18th, 1911. May 18th next month is the 110, actually this coming May, is the 110th anniversary of their meeting. And, in and they form this friendship and Julius Rosenwald agrees to go on the board of the Tuskegee Institute. And in 1912, they create this idea that becomes known as Rosenwald Schools. And they, they, the essence of the program is something that today we all know. It's a challenge grant. Nobody knew what a challenge grant was back then. They reach out to the black communities of the South and they say, if you will contribute to a school because we want you to be a partner in your own progress, and we will count as your contributions, cash, land, material, and labor. And if you will go to the school board, the white school board, and get them to agree to own, maintain, and staff the school, pay for the teachers, then I, Julius Rosenwald, will make a substantial contribution towards school construction. Now you have to remember, this is 19, 1911, 1912. This is before the Great Migration, which doesn't start until later that decade. 90% of African-Americans live in the South. And public schools for African-Americans are mostly shacks with a fraction of funding provided to normal, uh, to, uh, to white children, uh, schools for white children. And most communities, many communities do not even have public schools for African-Americans. And so this program in partnership with the black community from 1912 to 1937 builds 4,978 schools across 15 states. And it transforms America. I'll just simply say two more things and then I'll get back to, to uh, the, the central question here. There are two economists in the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago that have done five studies of Rosenwald schools. And what their data shows is that there was a large and persistent black-white education gap in the South before World War I. And between World War I and World War II, that gap closes precipitously. And the single greatest driver of that achievement is Rosenwald schools. The second thing is that many of the leaders in the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement come through these schools. Medgar Evers, Maya Angelou, several members of the Little Rock Nine, Congressman John Lewis, um, and that contribution is obviously an enormously sweeping contribution. So I had never heard of Rosenwald schools um, until uh, early in 2015. My first book was at the publisher. It was coming out later that year. I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And my first book had been a portrait of an abandoned college campus, which happens to be an historically black college, which uses this idea of educational spaces with which we're all familiar, populated by ghosts and not people, 
to 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 bring in the narrative of the importance of education is sort of the, is the backbone of the American dream, and this thread throughout American history. And I end up at this lunch sitting next to Jeannie Syriac, who originated the role of African American heritage specialist at the national at the uh, Georgia State Historic Preservation Office, and she tells me the story, and I am like stunned. I'm like, how could I not know this story? I'm a, I'm, I'm a fifth generation Jewish Georgian. I am, I've been a progressive activist my entire life. The pillars of this story, Jewish, Southern, progressive activists, they are the pillars of my life. How could I not know this story? I come home and I Google Rosenwald schools. And I saw that Aviva Kempner is on, on the call. Aviva did this documentary on this program that's fantastic. And I, I recommend it to everybody, but it came out later that year. I had not, I didn't know the film. I hadn't seen the film. Um, there are a couple of books on this topic, but there was not a comprehensive federal documentary. And I'm like, this is what I am going to do. And so um, of the original 4,978 schools, there's about 500 left. Only about half of those have been restored. And over three and a half years, I drove 25,000 miles to all 15 program states and shot 105 of these schools and also um, interviewed dozens of historians and alumni and, and uh, preservationists and teachers in these schools and their portraits appear in the book. And so um, it's, it's been an extraordinary journey. And uh, I think I'll just pause there and see where, where, uh, where, what other, where you'd like me to go next. <laughs> um, well, thank you for that because you gave a concise uh, reading of a very complex history. Um, but if you could tell us the years that you worked on it, when you began, and, and I'm interested, my, I know the order of my slides, so one's coming up with all of the miles that you went and across 15 states. Um, I guess I would love to hear from that luncheon and your first Google to now, yeah. um, because that sounds, like it took over your life yeah. in a big way. Yeah. So this is February, 2015. I have a book coming out in October, 2015. And so I kind of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do, but I have to park it and I got to get my book out the door. So that's kind of, I parked the idea for a year. And in February of 2016, Jeannie Syriac and I got in the car and she took me to, so Jeannie was the, um, African-American heritage specialist at the Georgia State Historic Preservation Office. And she had spent a, more than a decade driving across Georgia trying to find Rosenwald schools. And she was the first person to do what's known as a multi-site listing on the National Register of Historic Places. She got 37 schools listed simultaneously in a way that if another school were found later and about 10 have been found since then to survive, they can be effectively automatically added to the National Register. And as Jeannie would later sort of um, scoff at me that she had to find all those schools without the aid of the internet. She would show up in these communities and start asking people like, have you ever heard of this school? Like, do you know where this might be? Um, and, you know, whereas I had the aid of, not only to have the aid of the internet between, but um, there's some digitized archives now that, that help make, that we've only, we're only digitized in the last decade that actually also aided my research a lot. Um, 
So it started with test shoots. I went with Jeannie up to Noble Hill, which is a school about an hour north of Georgia. I went down with her to Warm Springs, which happens to have the Eleanor Roosevelt School, the last Roosevelt School built in 1937. Um, there's, there's one on the campus of Savannah State College where I, I grew up in Savannah. Um, and so it started with that. And then at the time, the exhibition of my first book was traveling. And so, for example, it went to the uh, International Civil Rights uh, Museum in Greensboro, North Carolina, which is in the old Woolworths where the lunch counter move, sit-in movement began on February 1st, 1960. And so I would load up the exhibition in the back of my wife's SUV and I would drive to Greensboro and I had lined up Rosenwald schools to shoot. And I so shot schools all the way up. I unloaded, I hung the exhibition. I shot schools all the way back. Um, and then I, three months later, I'd go take the exhibition down and I'd do this all over again. And the exhibition went to, to uh, Dillard University's Art Museum in New Orleans. I did the same thing across Alabama and Mississippi. But what, so a couple of things happened in the course of that, because um, this, I knew very early on, this is an extraordinary story, but how do you tell it visually? And so there were two components of this that were really important. One, my process I have a history degree, I have a history background, I'm really interested in history. And my process has, as, as it has evolved is to read and shoot and shoot and read. I read, for this project, I read 41 books. I read um, over 50 uh, white papers, 75 newspaper articles, 50 national, there are 100 of these schools listed on the National Register of Historic Places. I read 50 National Historic Register nomination forms, which just have, an extraordinary amount of information and detail that's just incredible and really just fun to dive into. Um, but early on, I heard this, I read this extraordinary story. The Rosenwald Schools program starts with a pilot of six schools all near Tuskegee so that Booker T. Washington and his team can keep an eye on them. And he sends and, and Booker T. Washington has photographs taken of the students and teachers standing proudly in front of their school, sends them to Julius Rosenwald, who writes back that he is so moved by this that he is going to expand the program. And that all of my bodies of work, I mean, I, hadn't, I have not shot black and white photography since I was in graduate school, um, which was a long, frightfully long time ago. Um, but that's what made me decide to do this entire body and homage to that moment, historical moment and the connection of this program to photography. I decided to shoot, decided to shoot this entire body of work, not only in black and white, but horizontal because these, the fundamental linear, uh, linearity of these buildings is a horizontal linearity and all those photographs were horizontal. Can I interrupt? You're giving us such good information, but I am so glad that you brought that up and because I wanna underscore one aspect is your intentionality. The intentionality of how you made photographic choices to impact the overall intention of what you want this to be. It's an homage to that history. And then you're also doing something um, where even that it's horizontal. I mean, yes, I imagined that the black and white was the historical nod, but the idea that it went back to that one 
where photography mattered. I mean, of course, it brings up Frederick Douglass and it brings up all this idea of how um, photography has changed so much of our collective experience. Um, and I'm just going to interrupt to say, before I can move on in the slides, it struck me, first of all, two things. Um, having read the book, you take um, in each under most photographs is a maybe two paragraph piece of text that's information. And when I understand what you just described, what you read, you make every sentence count. And it's probably why I had the experience I did, which was I was getting fed so much, like my light bulb brain going off, like really, I had no idea. And it was just all of this threading and lighting up, you really illuminated so many pieces. So the historian in you is coming out and the fact that you could condense it and give it to us like this and be thinking of it as a visual experience too, kudos to you. And I'm just gonna say for this image, how you had to wait for this scene, which is another photographic moment. I'm just gonna stop and say like, you know, how do you make a, a, an image of a historical plaque compelling? And you did. <laughs> you just, you opened up a lot. So let me, I wanna respond brief, first of all, to that point. And then secondly, to, um, to the stories. And then thirdly, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the narrative, the, the visual threads here. Um, on this particular image, first of all, this is why I was so looking forward to this. Like no other conversation that I have in the next couple of months as we roll is going to focus on this image. But I'm standing here in front of this historic sign, like how the hell do you make this thing? Yeah. Well, and I'm standing out in front of this sign for probably an hour and a half. And these trucks are going by. So the dump trucks are actually coming by with some regularity. There's obviously like a borrow pit somewhere and fine. And yeah, there's a train track. Mm -hmm. Nothing happening on the train track. And after about an hour and 15 minutes or so, I hear the train whistle and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> And, you know, you just get lucky and the train goes by and there's cars coming and stuff like that. And then the dump truck comes, another dump truck comes by. And of course I was set up for it. And I, you know, I was there for the blur, but at the same time, sometimes it's just better to be lucky than good. <laughs> well, frankly, I mean, a super lucky, like once you hear the train, you have to start praying for a dump truck, but you got it, you got it framed. <laughs> right? Like the framing of it, it's crazy, but yeah. it's not crazy. It's actually the ability that you had to envision, which comes with the skill. So I just had to stop the story for that because it was just, So to answer your thing about the stories, you know, I am aware that there is a point of view that says the photo, photo, photographs should stand, a photo documentary should stand on its own. It should not require prose. And you know, that's fine. Mm -hmm. That's not what this body of work is. And what happened for me in this story is that I came across so much incredible richness that I felt compelled to write these stories. And so it ends up there's, 
um, there are 80, there's basically a story that goes with almost every image. Sometimes it's a pair of images. There's 85 photographs, 69 stories, 16,000 words of stories. Um, but I had a, but to your point, I had a self-imposed limit of 250 words, um, which I broke in only one case because there were just, I mean, I literally, and I, I'm a, I can wordsmith with the best of them. And I just could, there's one that's about 263, I think which is actually one we'll get to because it's the one related to Gordon Parks. Mm -hmm. I just could not get out another word, but or cut out another word, but uh, that there was an incredible discipline and a lot of, there's some really good stories that got left on the editing room floor because I just, you can't tell everything. But what, my, what I tried to do with the stories is to create what I call the horizontal narrative mm. and the vertical narrative. Mm. From beginning to end, there's three, there's three essays um, there's an introduction by Congressman John Lewis, who's a Rosenwald School alum, Jeannie Syriac with the principal historical essay, Brent Leggs, uh, who's the um, heads up African-American preservation of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and whose parents both went to Rosenwald schools and who got his start in historic preservation by documenting the Rosenwald, surviving Rosenwald schools in Kentucky, uh, wrote in a glorious afterward about memory and history. Uh, and then I have an essay, in too, but we still have all these stories. And the, what I try to do with the stories is have them work um, horizontally and vertically. Horizontally is the, the historical narrative from beginning to end. And the vertical narrative is the connection of that overarching narrative to the individual image. And just- Wait, to, wait sorry, say that again, because I was visually trying to get it. Could you so, just repeat that? Because that's yeah, great. Yeah. So I have I have the horizontal narrative that goes across all of the stories. By the time you get from beginning to end, you should have mm -hmm. a comprehensive picture of the Rosenwald Schools program and how it changed over time. Mm -hmm. And the right. vertical narrative, which is the link of this individual image to a particular to that overarching uh, history. Got it. So, for example, the image that's up on the screen right now, I'll just use that. This is so the. Uh, um, original first set of Rosenwald schools were designed by a team of architects at Tuskegee led by a man named Robert Robinson Taylor. Robert Robinson Taylor was the first African-American to matriculate to MIT, the first accredited after African-American architect. And he leads this team that is literally doing progressive era architecture. This is architecture in service of education. And um, there are a number of critical design elements that they lay out at the very beginning that are reflected in this building. Um, there's mm -hmm. an interior image as well, um, but um, large windows to let in lots of light because these schools originally didn't have electricity. Potbelly stoves to heat through the, had brick chimneys to heat the rooms. Ante rooms, those two little windows on either side of the door, those are these cloak rooms so that dirty outer garments could be left in the cloak rooms and not sully the education spaces. Inside this room, this one teacher school are actually two rooms divided by a, you can see this partition in the interior image. They had these folding doors that they could pull back so that the building could serve as a community center outside of education hours. 
And all of those elements are literally designed. This is the oldest, we believe the oldest surviving Rosenwald School from 1915. This is in Hale County, Alabama, by the way, home of where, you know, let us now praise famous men, home of Christenberry, now home of Rural Studio. And um, so there's this huge connection. There's, uh, there were 15 Rosenwald schools in Hale County to survive, both are in my book. Um, so in this particular case, I use this school at the very beginning to lay out those architectural principles. Later in another image in the book, I get more deeply, it's okay, I got my 250 word limit. Here I have to talk about architecture. I can't really tell the Robert Robertson Taylor story here. I have an opportunity to do that later because his great granddaughter is Valerie Jarrett. And right. I reached out to Valerie Jarrett to ask her if I could do her portrait to bring her great-grandfather's story into this uh, narrative. And within 20 minutes, she got back to me. I sent her an email and within, I got her email address and I sent her an email and within 20 minutes, she got back to me and she said, absolutely. And so her portrait is in the book holding yes. up you know, stamps with um, that were uh, honored Robert Robinson Taylor in 2013. Which is exactly, and that's how you really kept me as a reader and viewer um, on my toes because I kept getting, that's the vertical that you were talking about. Yeah, and right. it just brought it so close to home to know, you know, what the legacy of the people that once were here. And right. when you're looking at this, um, I, was, uh, I was thinking how I really enjoyed learning about the nine uh, the, the windows. <laughs> yeah, the design of the windows specifically. But when you read the foreword and you hear John Lewis talking about taking turns to go in the woods to get the wood to put in the pot-bellied stove, there's yes. no running water. They also ran for that. Yep. Um, his foreword is so poignant, and um, I have a, a a part that I would quote at the end if we have time because he said it in quite few words. But when you think of when he was writing it and where he was in his life, looking back on that and talking about holding books that had were basically discarded books and that 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 he had such a drive for reading and learning and and getting books. I mean, it was just so foundational. And when yeah. you think of what people went through to make it happen. Um, and oh, when you also reminded me when you said, Kristen Berry, of your influences, just to weave in photography again, you had a Belcher type of inspiration to yeah. do the kind of, you knew you were making a historical document. You knew this was an index and you went back historically into photography. Um, Kristen Berry, you said, was also a, an influence on you. So just weaving that in every now and then. Yeah, so I'd say two things. First of all, the thing to me the, as, as a Southerner, the essence of Kristen Berry's work is this uh, idea that there is um, history in, the, in the, this vernacular language of the rural Southern landscape. And to me, uh, this phrase is not original with me. It's actually from an historian of, of Rosenwald schools. She, she describes these schools as having an austere beauty. Mm -hmm. I love that phrase, but that's the essence of Christenberry's work. And so uh, that I see his, what, what he was looking for, I find in these structures. 
But um, but to go back to, I did start with this idea, you know, that comes out of the Bashers and, and the, um, this idea of grids. And it's one of the reasons that I started, I started this work with exteriors and thought that, frankly, that might be what this body of work is about, right? Of these ideas of these, how the patterns of the exterior architecture and how it changes over time. One teacher schools, two teacher schools, three teacher schools. By the end of the program, they're building one, two, and three-story red brick buildings. But the story felt really incomplete. And so I started making more of an effort. Sometimes I would find buildings that were abandoned and I'd get inside, but you know, a lot of them have been restored. You need permissions to get inside. And so I started, and so what it, what it ends up with is the exteriors tell the architectural narrative, the interiors tell the adaptive reuse narrative, you know, the 4,978, mm -hmm. only 500 that survived, only half of those have been restored but very few are still being used for educational purposes. Of the 105 schools I went to, only five are still in use as educational facilities. And the rest have had to have been adaptively reused as the interiors largely tell the adaptive reuse narrative. But then as I started to meet the people, it just became clear that, that these former students, former teachers, preservationists, in fact, in many cases, all three, uh, the people who become, who are the former teachers have, excuse me, former students become educators and then become the leaders in their communities that are preserving these spaces historically. You know, they are the keepers of the flame of memory and history. Um, they became the emotional heart of the story. And, and frankly, were the most fun part of this entire experience was just spending time with those just extraordinary people. Yeah, actually, that also hit me because, you know, yes, we know who John Lewis is. We know who Gordon Parks is. We know Maya Angelou, Marian Anderson, uh, all the people that have a tie to it. But when you were reading about these people who gave land and still are living on that land or people who their grandparents were the first teachers and then now they're preserving. I mean, the legacies that you had of, of people who have devoted their life and we would have never known. I mean, they're so proud. There's many in here. I, I mean, I've several examples of that in some of our slides, but um, I just have to applaud how you kept several stories you honored all of it. You honored the history, you honored the people, you honored the impact, you honored the the really interesting ties of the architecture and how we have to think about that. Like we're thinking on so many levels and I feel like um, the book drew me along in all of them kind of equally. So I know that wasn't easy. You had to reimagine, re-narrate yourself as the story went, which I talk all the time about your photography being in conversation with your work because the work will lead you where you need to go. And you had a lot of that on a lot of different levels. So yeah, you managed a great deal. Uh, thank you. Yeah, you know, I think that the, the, as the story unfolded, you start to find um, holes in the narrative, narratives that you want to tell. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll just give you one example. When you, I, I early on, I found that there's a school with a direct connection to the Tuskegee syphilis study. Okay, there is a school connected to the Brown versus Board case. Yes. 
there is um, a school connected to the Little Rock Nine. And so then you start thinking about these other moments. The Tuskegee Airmen. Well, that's, this, is, this is exactly the story I was going to get to. So I think, okay, Tuskegee Airmen. And, and actually, to be honest, this wasn't original with me. A friend of mine from graduate school well, I would, it, it, uh, it was asking me how the project was going and blah, blah, blah. And he just mentions that he had a great uncle who was a Tuskegee Airman. And I'm like, is he still alive? <laughs> and she said, no, he died in a plane crash in the 50s. Wow. And I, so that started down this path of researching whether I could find a Tuskegee Airman who went to a Rosenwald school. Well, the first thing you can, you Google, you find a, a few things about surviving Tuskegee Airmen. Of course, they're, they're dying every day. And so-and-so grew up in Minnesota. Okay, well, they didn't go to a Rosenwald school. There weren't any in Minnesota. And I come across the story of a, um, a, a Tuskegee Airman who has uh, spoken with some frequency in public who grew up in Jacksonville and has spoken at a Rosenwald school. I can't find him. So I, I, and the school has a website and I leave a message and then I'll get a phone call back, but I send an email to this school. It's been fixed up. It's a little bit of little museum. And I get a phone call. This is Major L. Anderson. Are you looking for me? <laughs> and so I tell him this story about Rose. He's never heard of Rosenwald schools. And he tells me he went to West Jacksonville Elementary School and Stanton High School. I said, okay, let me do a little research. I'll call you back. So I go Stanton High School, historically black, open in the 40s, but open in the 40s, not related to the Rosenwalds. And then I see what I find West Jacksonville Elementary. Well, there's currently a West Jacksonville Elementary School. And you look at and you find it online. Go, Go to Google, go to Google Earth and you can go, you could go to Street View and you like this building was built in the 1980s. So I then go to the Rosenwald School's database, which is online at Fisk University. And there was a previous West Jacksonville Elementary School that was a two teacher school. So I call him back and I'm like, did your school have two main classrooms? Yeah. Did it have a dividing wall between those two classrooms that you could pull back? Yeah, and it had a potbelly stove in each room. I'm like, sir, you went to a Rosenwald school. And so he lives in Washington, D.C., in Anacostia. And I go, I go up to Washington. And so, and he was, he worked on, so we know the story of the Tuskegee Airmen from mostly the uh, P 58 Mustangs. What we don't know is that there was a whole nother wing of the, of the, the 499th bomber wing, which was B-25 bombers. So long story, I'm a bit of a geek. Years ago, I went to Silver Hill, which is the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum's restoration facility in Silver Hill, Maryland. And I go online and I find out that there's a B-25 there. So I go to the Smithsonian, I, I contact the Smithsonian and I try to get permission. And they're like, sorry, nobody's allowed. No, no, uh, civilians are not allowed up here. And I mean, I'm sort of like incredulous because I've already been there. <laughs> now, yes, it was 25 years ago. Yes, I was working on Capitol Hill, but fine. They're not gonna let me in. So I, I then asked permission to shoot him at 
uh, the Udvar-Hazy Air and Space Facility out of Dulles Airport with airplanes, World War II airplanes in the background. The single most complicated thing I did in this entire project was negotiating with Smithsonian just to get in to do this damn picture. The night before they send me a 13 page legal agreement. Wow. So anyway, we got it done. Well, okay. And I've got to say that portrait is stellar. And the part that really got me was he was wearing the, um, he was awarded with other people by President Obama and he was wearing that. Uh, It's not, I don't remember the technical term of what medal he received. Yeah, it's called a presidential coin. He's he's wearing a a red red sport jacket with all of these um, lapel pins related to the Tuskegee Airmen. He has one World War II service medal on one lapel, another World War II uh, service medal on his other lapel. And around his neck on a chain is what's called a presidential coin that was given to him. It's his proudest possession. And it's given to him and all the other Tuskegee Airmen who visited the White House, uh, I believe in 2013. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and I'll just add this other little twist to the story. Um, I'm taking his picture in front of these World War II aircraft and word gets around the museum that there's a Tuskegee Airman there and this crowd gathers. And he, he's, you know, he's standing and I'm taking his picture and, and after a couple of clicks, he needs, to, he needs to rest. He's like 95 years old. And so he goes and sits down and all these people line up to come shake his hand. Uh. I mean, just, it was so moving and so yeah. Well, uh, that is, I, I mean, he stood out for me too. And could you just comment on this photograph before I pass on it? Um, so two things. Number one, um, my earlier book had a number of historical images. It was, as I said, it was this abandoned college campus. And I went through every one of their historical, their old yearbooks and found certain historical images. And they populated the um, the, sorry, the edges of the introduction to that book. And I didn't want to do that with this project. I didn't want to just bring in historical images. So I decided that to the extent that I was going to use any historical images, I was going to shoot them. So the portrait of Julius Rosenwald that introduces him as a character is a portrait of, of a picture of a photograph Mm-hmm. of Julius Rosenwald hanging on the wall of a Rosenwald school. The portrait of Booker T. Washington is a portrait of um, Booker T. Washington that hangs in the president's home at Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. So this is, so I wanted to actually bring in this idea of the importance of these historic photographs of the students and teachers in front of the school. And one of the schools that I shot that where there's an exterior image in the book is the Jefferson Jacobs School uh, in, in Kentucky, Jefferson County, Kentucky. And the uh, and so I found this in the historical archives, which is a, a portrait of these students and teachers hanging out in front of the schools. And so they actually, I'll just tell you what, what happened here is they actually sent me the digital image. So what I did was I then turned it back into an object by printing Great. it and putting it in front of books that's actually on my desk. And those are a sample of all the Rosenwald books that I related to the story that I read. 
I'm so glad to know that. Another creative decision that you took to such an nth degree. And now that we know that you got the digital file, which is like, yeah, put it in your book. And that would send a different message, right? right, right. Like you are giving it, you are giving such a tangible experience of the history of it. And then that you put it behind or that the Rosenwald books are behind. Really, really powerful. So I didn't even know that when I chose this picture for the for the PDF. Um, hang on, I gotta. This is one of the folding walls that still lives. So in 105 schools, I only found three that can that still had these folding walls. And I, first of all, I've been in the other two schools and they were not nearly as photogenic. Anyway, so what happened here, so this school, this school has a whole nother story associated with it. So this is on the camp, this is in Berea, Kentucky and Berea College uh, is one of these extraordinary places that offer, that first of all, it began in the, in the, um, in 1855, it was founded by the grandfather of Edward Embry. Embry becomes the head of the Rosenwald Fund in, uh, in 19, late 1927, early 1928. Um, he's, he comes over from the Rockefeller Fund at a moment when Julius Rosenwald is professionalizing his philanthropy. And so this, his grandfather has founded this college and it is, um, it is a college for blacks and for whites. It's the first bi, uh, multiracial college in the South. Mm -hmm. And in 1904, sorry, later then a couple of decades later, they decide to introduce free tuition and um, and they put every spare penny into their endowment so that they can afford to do that. And then in 1904, they pass a law. Kentucky passes a law called the Day Act, which bans interracial uh, education. So they can no longer accept African-Americans, but they do. Ex they continue to offer free education back then. The, the 50s come. The law is overturned. And they can once again offer uh, uh, integrated education. And now, basically, between I'm going to do these numbers. I don't know the precise numbers, but I'll do them off the top of my head. About 27%, I think, is African American. About 11% is Latinx, and there's another chunk that are international, and it's and it's free tuition. And so I find this woman, um, Sharon Mitchell, who went to this Rosenwald School whose grandmother was a teacher in the Rosenwald School, whose great uncle was the principal of the Rosenwald School. And I hear that they have, that they have restored it because this is now the offices of the component of Berea College where they go up into, into the Appalachian Hills and try to recruit people to, who might not otherwise sent this sort of white working class and, and, and African-American working class and might not think about college to say, you know, you should think about college, our tuition is free. And so it's sort of the recruitment arm of the college. And I hear that they have these restored doors. So I asked Sharon Mitchell if she will meet me there and if she will participate in this project. And, she, and she's very shy and very humble and when I, but when I, she's an archivist at the college. And when I explained to her that I'm doing these stories and that this is in service to enabling me to tell the Berea College story, she's like, oh, okay, I'll do it. And there you go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go through a couple of shots because I want to make sure this is the one that's still working. Correct. That yeah. it's present so this, day, or this, yeah. This is um. This is the uh, 
Plaisance School in uh, St. Landry Parish, Louisiana. Um, Louisiana, other than Missouri, Missouri only had three Rosenwald schools and there's one left. Um, but other than that, because it joined the program very, very late, other than that, the state with the fewest surviving Rosenwald schools is Louisiana. When I started this project, there were only two known surviving schools. That number is now, there's more interest in this topic and that number is up to about eight now, but um, there's not that many. And this is, this is a rare, so this school was basically added onto in 1960. You see the buildings off to the left, these sort of one-story red brick buildings and it is so it is still uh, actively used for education. And I'd say two things about this school. One is, it's visually not that interesting. And I um, decided, I had already been to the school and I had, I, I, I had shot it once focused on the school itself and kind of cutting out all the stuff that was added on. And then later when I did the research on it, I realized, oh, the story is actually what got added on because this is still an active school. So frankly, I had to go back and shoot this one. And I decided, how do, okay, same thing. How do you make this interesting? And so I decided I was gonna get up early in the morning and be there when the school buses arrived and maybe I could get the blurry school buses dropping off the kids. So I had to call the principal in advance and tell her that I was coming so that they didn't think that I was like some weirdo taking pictures of the kids coming off the school buses. So I get there and I'm setting up and first, first of all, the school buses start to come and go, completely does not work. And so it's actually like, how do you make this interesting? And my wife calls me and I'm like, <laughs> is this emergency? Because I'm out in front of this school and this is really hard to shoot. Can I call you later? <laughs> which I, of course, which is fine. Of course I do. So then I go inside and I sit and I talk to the principal just to sort of say, thank you. And, and we sit down and it turns out she has done a huge amount of research on the Rosenwald schools. And, and this particular school is an example. Remember, early in the program, it's kind of Julius Rosenwald and the Black community. Later on, it's a much longer story, but later on, public funds become a much bigger part of the program, in part because Julius Rosenwald gives them air cover, political cover, and in part because of the Great Migration. The South is losing its workforce. The Blacks are leaving. And so the public school systems decide to invest more in education to retain their workforce. But if this is early on in the program. This is 1920. 70% of the money for this school came from the Black community. These are people, remember, that are already being taxed to pay for white schools. They're not going to. And they reach into their... And so the woman says to me, and marveling at the role of the black community. And I'm gonna paraphrase, I'm doing it off the top of my head. They worked and they strove and they did what they could to make a better life for their children because in their eyes, education was liberation. And that's the origin of the title of this book. Wow. Wow, it's interesting to see the you know, I had a lot of images to choose from, and it's really fun to hear the depth of the ones. You know, I already thought there was a lot of information. Now you're giving me more ties. Um, yeah, so amazing. Amazing, this the serendipity of that, you know, that you had the time to go in and talk and then learn that, and then that becomes your title. And I also appreciate that you reshot, that your storyline meant that an image wasn't okay. Right. Um, which is great. 
So let's, I'm trying to think, I probably have about four more shots and I want to make sure we have enough, I mean, we have another half hour, yeah. so there's not pressure, but I just wanted to give a, a frame. I probably have four more, five more shots, but. I'll, do, I'll, do, I'll say two quick things about this. this these are the Pleasant Hill quilters. Um, they <laughs> uh, quilted to raise money to restore the Pleasant Hill Rosenwald School to turn it into a community center. And so this story is actually the part of the adaptive reuse narrative. It is now a community center. They meet on Mondays in the, uh, in the schoolhouse to quilt. Um, and I'll say um, uh, two more things about this. Number one, there was an article about them in uh, Texas Highways Magazine, which had a picture of all of the, um, had, a, had a picture of them in this space. And I, 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 I literally, I just saw that picture. And I like, I conceptualized just from that article that the way I wanted to shoot this image was the quilt spread out across the table with them behind it. So I actually knew how I was gonna shoot this image before I showed up. The other thing I will tell you is the timeliness of this. Um, there's between the fact that there's actually 21 images in the book that have portraits, but because three or four of them are these group portraits, there's actually 47 people mm. faces appear in this book. Three of them have died including the woman in the front row in the center here, um, who uh, LaJoyce Flanagan, who was 95 when this picture was taken, who was a teacher in this Rosenwald school and who I, when I interviewed, um, talked and she's quoted in the story uh, as saying that, you know, she had a career in education, but the students she had in this school were her best students and how, how much she enjoyed teaching these, these students because they were so motivated to excel. I mean, that's the kind of thing, I get chills. Like, what are the chances, right? That, yeah. that you envisioned it, that she was alive for this, that you have quoted her, that she has passed away, that she taught there and then quilted there into her 90s. Yep. Unreal. Unreal. I loved this. Yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll just simply say is um, you never know what images are going to resonate with people. Mm -hmm. People who have seen the full body of work, I mean, there is no question in my mind, this is the favorite image of people. This is everybody's, this is a, on the shortest list of favorite images in the book for people. That's funny. Yeah. Well, tell us something about it because Oh, this is, uh, this is, I'm responding aesthetically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually the, the, the story of this one is kind of interesting. So there's this thing called art fields, um, in Lake city, South Carolina, it's an annual festival of Southern artists and you can submit one piece of art and they will accept you or reject you. And I've been privileged to be in art fields for the last four years. And so this is a couple of years ago, I think maybe three, two or three years ago. And I am at, in Lake City, South Carolina. I know that, this, that there is this Rosenwald, and the next day I'm gonna go shoot Rosenwald schools, but I haven't been connected. I haven't actually met anybody associated with these schools yet. I was just gonna, this is one of those times I'm just gonna show up. And this is my, I think my third year at Art Fields. And I'm at, the, they have this, for the first time, they've introduced something new, which is this sort of cocktail reception for the artists and people in the community. 
and I'm kind of standing around and I don't know anybody and nobody's talking to me. And I look over and there's this African-American couple sitting over at a table. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go talk to them. Nobody's talking to them. I'm going to go talk to them. I sit down and I start talking to them and I tell them about this program. And it turns out, so this particular school sits across the street from one of the oldest black churches in South Carolina. The church had a school in the church building. When the Rosenwald Schools program comes, they arrange to build this um, Rosenwald School next to the church. Um, and it's kind of in it's been in disrepair, but it's in the process of being slowly fixed up to be used as a as a, a church hall. And the guy says, Well, I can get you in. And he calls his pastor on the cell phone. <laughs> and and the pastor has their landscape guy meet me there at 7.30 the next morning to take this picture. And it's another picture This is inside the whole space, which is also one of my favorite pictures, actually, because the lines are just gorgeous. Uh, and there, that's that's how this picture came about. I think you need to write a book about writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. More legacy. Yeah, so this is a really interesting story about my process. Um, so one of the books that I read as part of this, I, I, was, I was, of course, well aware of Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Sons, the sort of definitive history of the Great Migration before this project, but I had not read it. And I'm reading her, I'm reading Warmth of Other Sons, and I come across this incredible story that when the migrants would get to the north one of the first things they would do is have their portrait made as you were alluding to earlier because this Frederick goes Douglas. back mm -hmm. to frederick Douglass, mm -hmm. that it was a statement that they had arrived in this promised new land and so I get up to the Noble Hill School and I've been to, the, this is the first school that I went to with Jeannie Syriac, but I did not shoot this portrait then. I shot the exterior image then. Then only later I went back up and I'm talking, these, this, this is Marion Coleman on the left, on the right, Valerie Coleman on the left. So here's the story, Webster Wheeler, and, the, and he's, he's in the portrait. Um, that's, that's being held up. Webster Wheeler grew up in this town, Cassville, Georgia, Bartow County. He leaves as part of the Great Migration. He goes to Detroit. He spends a career as a carpenter working for the Ford Motor Company. In 1923, he finds out that his town has been granted a Rosenwald grant and he moves back. And, and with one other member of the community, the two of them build this school. Marion Coleman on the right is on the last graduating classes in this school. And later she becomes one of the people who leads the restoration of the school and turns it into this um, community center and, and cultural center dedicated to the preservation of African-American culture in North Georgia. She is the curator of this space, this center for 20 years. She's the great granddaughter of Webster Wheeler and then she hands the baton to her to her niece, the great great granddaughter of Webster Wheeler, who is now the curator of this uh, of this center. And they're holding up this portrait that was taken of him when he arrived in Detroit. 
And of course, behind them, this is original chalkboard behind them, Rosa Parks, Dr. King, President Obama. Wow. Really incredible. Uh, that's simply the, that, that's the school in Berea College that you've already shown earlier where I did the portrait of Sharon Mitchell with the folding doors. Plot. With the dividing doors. Right. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I'm yeah. remembering stories. I mean, I, I, as I see them, but go ahead. Uh, this is in uh, this is in Newberry County, South Carolina. It's, it's just a couple of things. First of all, it's next to a church. You can see how the graveyard grew up around it. There's several schools that, that fit that pattern. This is now in the, you can see there's new windows. It's in the process of being restored. But the, I use this to tell the story of, of density. Um, there were 26 Rosenwald schools in this one county. There were 40, uh, 40 something counties in um, South Carolina. Every one of them had at least one Rosenwald school. But um, there, uh, there were 85% of counties that had a meaningful African-American um, school age population had Rosenwald schools in the South. Um, and, and so there's just this breadth. And, and one of the reasons you have a situation where like 26 Rosenwald schools are in one county is you gotta remember people were walking to school. Now this, is, this is, happens to be the era where larger schools are being built for whites, but they had school buses. They didn't mm -hmm. offer school buses to the black community. And so the blacks had to walk to school, which is why you have a series of smaller schoolhouses. Mm -hmm. that, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, it's interesting how you can um, put that together. Um, I put in this quote because of that connection to Little Rock Nine. Um, and I just, this might be a good time for me to just read this quote from John Lewis, because I thought it was so amazing, um, where he writes, that feeling of respect never went away, even when I began to learn what that flag actually represented. It, because he was talking about the Georgia flag, I believe. The Alabama flag. Which Alabama has a, flag. Had a red X across it. Mm -hmm. It was what it was supposed to stand for, a people, a community, a society united by a common bond that gave me a feeling. And he talked about, um, hang on one sec. He said, my parents would describe education in almost mythical terms, that it offered the keys to the kingdom of America, that it offered the keys to a better life and to the opportunity so long denied our race. He said, but farming still came first. Uh, part of why they had those ante rooms because a lot of them worked and then went to school. Um, and he said, I knew that the names written in the fronts of our raggedy secondhand textbooks were white children's names and that those books have had been new when they had belonged to them. And I knew ever more clearly that education was the way out and the way up. Thought that was beautiful. Um, and I think as I go between my screens, I just have this from the um, forward as well. Informed and engaged citizens hold the power through their vote and through their actions to make our world better for all. So I think it was so powerful that he wrote your forward. He's no longer with us and that he was a graduate. Um, and then when you on list, you know, you listed the people, Zora Neale Hurston and uh, W.E. Du Bois, who James Baldwin, who received fellowships. They were not Rosenwald students, but that as the institute changed or it became an institute and 
and uh, it was one of the things that um, Julius had said that it had to be dispersed within a certain amount of years of when he died. And, and that is what Gordon Parks used and other uh, people that we know about now that were given funding at a particular part that made their careers possible and were all the better for all of those careers. I think you have yeah. the Leslie Parks failing. You know what? I thought so, but I don't know because I switched. But you know what we can do because we switched PDFs? Um, if you want, I will go back to an image because it would be nice to be speaking on an image. Let's um, uh, let's open to questions. And Deb, I know that people can either write in the chat, but I think we have a group where if we want to unmute and ask, that would be fine. Um, how would you like, Deb, what... Should we have questions in the chat or can we just let people unmute? I think we can let people unmute. Great. So let's open it up to questions. And I. Let me just address uh, the thing that you were just saying without the image. Um, yep. The Rosenwald Schools program is obviously one of the, the um, extraordinary legacies of Julius Rosenwald. But the other, but there's another one, which is this, this Rosenwald fellowships that you're talking about. Um, and in fact, it is so impactful that in. Um, documentary about half the documentaries on Rosenwald schools and about half is on this Rosenwald's fellowship program. And while it was not the story that I was directly telling, I thought it was so important that I wanted to include it in some way. Mm -hmm. And so Gordon Parks, of all the photographers out there, the one who has shaped my photo photographic world the most dramatically was Gordon Parks. Because mm -hmm. number one, I had the ex I, I saw a very early exhibition of his work at the Corcoran Gallery in Washington when I was working in Washington back in the early '80s, and I had the incredible fortune of meeting Parks when he was um, out talking about his memoir *Voices in the Mirror*, and um, and, and it was I learned from Gordon Parks that this idea that art can be a form of social activism and this mm -hmm. I, and when i started finding my own photograph my own voice as a as a photographer it became my, my i've been long engaged in civic life and so it, it became my civic voice became my part of my my artistic voice and it turns out that gordon parks was a recipient of one of the rosenwald fellowships which were fellowships that were granted to predominant, essentially African-American um, intellectuals, um, writers, artists, scientists. Uh, so Zora Neale Hurston, Elaine Locke, um, James Weldon Johnson, the Clarks, um, the uh, Marian Anderson and Gordon Parks is the first photographer. Now there's also some about 500 and there's about a little more than 550 given to African-Americans. We're also a little more than 250 given to white liberals Wait. like Lillian Smith and, and uh, newspaper editor, Ralph McGill. Um, but it is the largest source of philanthropic contribution to African-American intellectuals in the 20th century. And, uh, I happen to be friends with Gordon Parks's daughter, Leslie. And so I had this I, same thing. I conceptualized this image that I wanted to do a portrait of Leslie holding a photograph made by her dad. Uh, and so we, 
she put me directly, she was very happy to participate. She puts me in touch with the Rosenwald Foundation, which maintains, not Rosenwald, excuse me, the Gordon Parks Foundation, which maintains the collection and an archive and legacy. And email, immediately they email me back with a copy of the self-portrait that turns out to have been included in Gordon Parks's application for a Rosenwald grant. <coughs> yeah, that's get my what I mean about this. I, I actually realized that you have, um, you gave me four in a separate email and they're not on here. I just downloaded them. So if we can take questions while I do this, Deb, can you see the downloads on the screen? I don't. Or no, you don't. Okay, so I'm just going to have to figure out how to get this to you. So if there are other questions, I'm going to try to pull up those four other images. So anyone else would like to ask a specific question? Hi, this is Leah. Hi, Leah. I'm just wondering if since some of this, since your, no, your book is coming out, there have been some other things. Isn't there a way to include this information in the curriculum of schools, not just in the South, but in the North? Is, is anyone working to do that? I think probably Aviva's better better position to answer that question. I don't know, but I, I think that there's actually a broader question that you're getting at, which is, you know, I think there's a, there, there is a much broader question today around curriculum. Uh, the fact that we don't <clears throat> civics, I actually, I would personally, I don't actually know if this is accurate. I'm going to speculate for a second. Why do we not teach civics in public <laughs> school? Um, I, I think there's a distinct possibility that that has Jim, uh, um, Jim Crow roots that the whites that were establishing the curriculum in the public schools in the South didn't want to talk about voting and democracy and things like that. Um, and so I think we need a broader um, civics agenda in our public school, public school curriculum. If you go to rosenwaldfilm.org, Rosenwald, this is rosenwaldschoolfilm.org, I'll tell you in a minute, you can download uh, a study guide for free. Ooh, could you put that in the chat, please? Well, when I go chat, I can't send it. I don't know why. Uh, I will. I will put it in there for you. Yeah. And just to say, when you were talking about the Tuskegee Airmen, the Rosenwald Fund loaned the money to establish the field, which is uh, now a museum near Tuskegee, which is just wonderful. And so that's doing this book. It's just incredible. Mm. So I'm very excited. We've been, uh, yeah, it's rosenwaldfilm.org. If you go there, there's a study guide. And what we're trying to do is not only do we have a DVD of the film, but there's four and a half hours more. As, you know, uh, the photographer has mentioned, there's just so many more stories. There, there's no end to it. So we just, you know, keep, as we say, keep, uh, keep it going and trying to, you know, I'm trying to get a streaming deal. But meanwhile, the film itself is available either for purchase on DVD or uh, virtual screenings. Great, thank you for that information. I'm trying to pull this up. I'm gonna stop that share and see if I can start a new one to get you the other image. 
But if we have other questions, we have a few more minutes. Or if there's another aspect that you would like to bring into it, Andrew. Um, if you're going to, yeah, that's the Leslie. Uh, and I'll, as long as we're as an exercise, I, I will, um, some of y'all will recognize uh, when I was thinking about this image and how to conceptualize it. That's the photograph that Gordon Parks was self-portrait that was part of his application of the Rosenwald Fund. By the way, I mean, I'll just add two more things about this. It was the Rosenwald Fund that arranged at their initiative for Gordon Parks to work for Roy Stryker at the Farm Security Administration. So what becomes the foundation of his greatness is intimately tied to the Rosenwald's the Rosenwald Fellowship. Um, I, and I'll, I, I, this is a little geeky, but I'll just put it out there. Um, and I will say happily, one person, uh, journalist that I talked to last week actually noticed this, uh, but it, the fact that she's sitting on a manhole cover is quite intentional. It is uh, a, a, a homage to uh, a body of work that uh, Gordon Parks did, uh, a photo essay that Bar Gordon Parks did in 1952 for Life magazine that was an illustration, a photo illustration of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Wow. So that's what I mean about writing a book about writing this book. <laughs> Those kinds of tie-ins are really uh, and just like the the ripple effect, which is really what I had as I as I read. There's one um, thing I'd like to bring up that um, we didn't touch on, which is you and I spoke about it uh, briefly earlier, and that is this idea that historically there were issues. Uh, let's put it this way: there was assessment and criticism of both Booker T. Washington and of Julius Rosenwald, um, which comes at their approach. Um, and um, if you could just speak to that for a bit, I think it's, and I'm glad, I was pleased that you wove that into the book. You you mm. made that a fact in the book. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's um... some, <laughs> There are no saints anywhere, right? Um, I think that we, to report on, I think you have to tell the complete story. And yes, there was, of course, criticism of Julius Rosenwald. There was criticism of Booker T. Washington. Um, the, 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 the criticism of Julius Rosenwald predominantly focuses on the idea that he was, yes, he was funding schools, but he was funding segregated schools. And, and of course, you know, my, I, I think that um, that speaks, I, I think that there's some idealism in that criticism, like the idea that a philanthropist in the North in 1912 America was going to single-handedly lead a charge against um, school segregation. Just look at the backlash that took place in the 1950s and you realize that that's just, I, I would argue that that's the antithesis of pragmatic. Um, Booker T. Washington 
was criticized really on two grounds. Um, he comes to Atlanta in 1895 and get, uh, to the Cotton States and International Exposition, which was a, essentially a world's fair that was the coming out of the South and post-Civil War coming out in a fairgrounds that is now our biggest park called Piedmont Park. It's five minutes from my house. And he gives a speech that comes out as Atlanta Compromise speech, where he says that in all things, um, uh, social, we can be as separate as the fingers, and as all things um, were uh, necessary for mutual progress, we can be as integrated as the fist. And that has led some people to charge that he was an accommodationist. In fact, the historical record is that he was, uh, he had a, his long-term vision was, was equality, uh, and what most people, what that criticism leaves out is, first of all, the pragmatism of his approach, which was to educate people and to create the economic foundation that would create the stability from which African-Americans could be viewed equally. But he also secretly was funding legal challenges to disenfranchisement and to segregation, including one case that goes all the way to the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court in 1903. And all that he did very quietly and very secretively. Um, and there's some, there's also some criticism. He and W.E.B. Du Bois both understood that education was the was the core path forward. He believed in um, in educating the masses, including in, in what was called back then industrial education, what we right. call tech today. And whereas W.E.B. Du Bois, whose experience was much more urban and much more northern, believed in what he called the talented tenth, educating the sort of intelligentsia to, to lead. Um, the path forward. And it's just a, it's a pedagogical difference. Yeah. Um, but so those are some of the criticism, but I feel to, to, to tell the complete story, I thought it was essential to at least acknowledge uh, the criticism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And as you and I uh, spoke about briefly, how um, having a one-sided view of something as complex as a human person is not really giving anyone the full picture. Right. So it's helpful to, um, to call that into being. And as you mentioned, is that not part of what we're grappling with <clears throat> to this day? Um, the ability to, um, to not put a person's um, actions into one soundbite or to close the door on what it is that they did or how they did it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So and I, um, yes, we, we do have a question. Um, can you talk about the schools in Arkansas? I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. Yeah, so there are, um, I shot about six or eight schools in Arkansas. Um, two made the cut to the book. One almost made the cut to the book, and so I'll tell you about both of the, all of those. So first of all, there's um, uh, the one of the schools that is still in use as an educational facility is the um, Dunbar School in Pulaski County, Little Rock, um, and it was from that school that several of the members of um, of, of the graduating uh, middle school it was, a, it was a middle school. Um, several of those students become members of the Little Rock Nine, who walk into history as the um, those who integrated Little Rock Central High School. And it is uh, that school was part of a a small number of schools that were a larger urban uh, industrial education schools that were very controversial within the program. 
because they focused on they were more focused on industrial education instead of classical education and drew the ire of the black community in these in these in these in these cities. Um, and that is now that's one of the few schools that is an active school. It is now a middle school, a magnet middle school. And when you see the image in the book, you will see that it has this Art Deco detail, which looks familiar. And the reason it looks familiar is that it was the same architect as Little Rock Central High School. And one of those from Dunbar who integrates, um, who is remember the Little Rock Nine, Carlotta Walls Lanier, uh, her portrait is in the book. So that's one. Um, there's also the St. Luke School in this extraordinarily named town, Turkey Scratch. Of course, I had to go there just because it was called Turkey Scratch. Um, and I'm out there taking this picture. So first of all, I, I, it, it's it's used as storage and it's actually painted dark green. And so it's got this lovely contrasty color and right next to it is this grain silo or um, grain bin, I think is the technical term. And there's this truck in front of the grain bin that happens to lay out beautifully photographically and the truck's engine is running. I get out of my car, I run past, the, I know there's a sign to my left. I run past the sign, I take this picture and a guy comes up in the pickup truck, says, can I help you? So I start talking to this guy, it turns out he's now, he's, he's like 40 years old. He now runs this farm. The farm was started by his grandfather, and he tells me this incredible story that his grandfather, who started this farm in the 40s, had a uh, foreman who was Mexican-American and who drove down to the border to get farm workers and bring them up to work on this farm. This is in the 40s. And there's this Rosenwald School. Oh, of course, this is where the minority kids go. So the Latinx farm workers send their kids to the St. Luke school. And about a week later, they're sent home by the African-American community leaders who tell them that their children are not welcome at the school for blacks. So that's that aspect of the story is also, you know, is very, very rich. Um, so I was pleased to be able to tell that story. And then, oh yes, yeah, so the sign I run back. So meanwhile, he says to me, he tells me the story. I later get in touch with him and he gives me the details. He said, but by the way, did you see the sign that you just ran past that, that, that was over here? I'm like, yeah, well, I saw that it was there. I didn't get to look at it. That historic marker was to Turkey Scratch's favorite son. Hello. Levon Helm, um, drummer of so the band who grew up literally next door to this Rosenwald school. Um, so, and then there's another one that I really tried to include in the school because it's in the town of Toad Suck, Arkansas. Like, I am going to Toad Suck, Arkansas. And I'm supposed to do a portrait. At this point in the process, I had not done any portraits of teachers. And I have met this woman who is a teacher in the Rosenwald School who has three daughters, all of whom have PhDs. And I'm in, I'm in touch with her daughter, Diane Hood. And I am in staying in this hotel in Conway, Arkansas, and I get a I'm supposed to meet them at nine o'clock in the morning. Mother, three daughters with PhDs, and at four thirty in the morning, I get a text message from Diane Hood. I'm really, really sorry. My mother's had a heart attack, and we're on our way to the emergency room. So, about six months later, 
I have arranged my schedule to go back to Toadsuck, Arkansas to try again. And I get in touch with Diane Hood and she says, my mom's out of the hospital, but she's just too frail to participate in this. And then a couple of months later, she texted me that her mother had passed away. So I did shoot the school. It's not included in the project. Um, but, you know, it's just another reminder that these are perishable resources. The people are perishable. The memories are perishable. The buildings are perishable. And we need to do what we can now to preserve these stories, preserve this memory. And we have to do what we can to save these buildings to, to um, recognize the important role that they play in our historical memory. Mm -hmm. You know, thank you for that. And thank you for that question. I'm thinking since we have to wrap, maybe you could end with where some of the exhibitions are that you are anticipating that the work will go to. Yeah, so the, um, the, uh, the book comes out April 1st. Um, and the, if you go to the Atlanta History Center website, you will see that there is um, an opening event where uh, former Atlanta Mayor Shirley Franklin will interview me on the virtual stage. Um, then on May 21st, the premiere exhibition of this work, um, selected images, printed very large scale, by the way, 20 by 30 image size, um, will open in downtown Atlanta at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, where it will be up from May, 20, uh, May 21st to December 10th. Uh, and then I'm working out the exact schedule from there, but basically in rough order, it will go to the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Uh, it will then go to the Tennessee State Museum in Nashville, the Virginia Museum of History and Culture in Richmond, and the new Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience in New Orleans. It just opened last month. Um, and then there are some, there's about half a dozen other museums around the country that I'm in active conversation with that we just have to um, work out the calendar. But it, this, this will be traveling for a number of years. Perfect. And if, if people want to purchase the book, do they go to the University of Georgia Press or where would um, you they, direct us? You can go to, you can purchase it. Uh, you can purchase the book just outright at Amazon. You can of course go to your local independent bookstore, which I always encourage if you'd like signed or personalized copies you can order through my website, which is andrewfiler.com. And I will simply add this just wacky detail. Andrew Filer is not that common of a name. There are two other photographers named Andrew Filer. <laughs> One is a wildlife photographer in based in New Orleans. And another is a 20 something new uh, photojournalist who relatively new out of uh, journalism school at the University of Missouri. And so like, fortunately, I have the Andrew Filer domain name, but it can be a little maddening. I already actually had a, uh, uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine from high from college found out about this work and then went to the website with the wrong Andrew Filer. So go figure. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, andrewfiler.com. And Hopefully not, if you, she found you yeah. again. But okay, terrific. Well, I really appreciate you you um, allowing us to be your first audience. I'm really excited for the um, physical publication. And I'm so glad that the work is traveling. And I just think you've done a real service to amplify a history that we need to know. And uh, thank you for that. And thank you for everyone who came. And um, just a word about our photo book book group. Um, we have two people coming in, in April with very different 
bodies of work. Um, Brian Bowen Smith uh, is a noted like celebrity photographer who did something called drive-bys. He was this in this was in um, response to the pandemic. He got in his pickup truck, and it is a book of really fascinating portraits. Uh, so we're going to be talking to him, and then we're going to be talking to Pete Souza, who doesn't have a book out now. Uh, he's had two books, uh, one on President Obama, uh, that's in its eleventh edition at the moment, and um, Throw Shade, which was later, and it actually this is the one in the eleventh edition, and uh, his later one, Throw Shade, uh, went through two editions. Um, there was a recent movie about his work. Um, really interesting in terms of what we want to do is talk to people about their creative practice and their bookmaking process. And so I'm excited to, uh, to unpack that with um, Pete Sousa. So I hope you can join us and, um, and thank you. And thank you very much, Andrew. This was really wonderful. And I wish that I, um, you know, I could, it was hard to select just as number of slides. Um, I could have shown a lot more. So I, thank, thank I, you. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. I knew this was going to be fun because I knew that this audience was going to sort of be interested in this kind of level of detail that your this sort of, shall we say, civilian audience would not be. So I really enjoyed being with all of you. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for having me. And um, I look, uh, this is, we're just, this is, this ride is just getting started and I look forward to sharing it with all of you.